So it was in that background that I was like, okay, if I'm going to be successful and not have to worry about money, I'm going to have to learn about this stuff. And so my dad, did, he did take like uh, Kiplinger's and Money Magazine, those kinds of things. So I, I could read the media. I could read financial press. But you read, a, you, know, you read two or three or four of those magazines and very quickly, you know that they're selling stuff. That's, that's all they do is they sell stuff. It's not educational, it's sales. And so if you, if you want to learn, you have to go to a source. You have to go something like Value Line Research. You got to go to books. You can't, you can't read marketing to learn. You have to actually learn. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Jonathan Dio. He is the author of the book, Mindful Money, and has led an independent financial planning firm since 2002, where he and his team work with one-on-one with over 300 families and foundations to help with their financial planning. He has managed investments for a wide variety of Wall Street companies before finding his own firm. He's also been a contributor on Personal Finance Matters for Huffington Post and Business Insider, and has also been featured on Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. So there's a lot that we can learn from this man. So I'll just shut up and say, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for being, thanks for having me on here, Matt. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? You know, I knew this was coming and I, it's such a tough, I, I love ice cream, man. That's my, it is my kryptonite. I love ice cream. I, I have to say probably peppermint stick would be my favorite. It's either that or cookie dough or something with peanut butter or, but yeah, I mean, I love ice cream. Let's go with yeah, peppermint stick. I, we're coming out of December right now. And there's this peppermint bark that they make oh, yeah. uh, during that time. Oh my gosh. It is oh, so, yeah. so delicious. <laughs> Now, I got to ask, because you're in Berkeley, California, I would assume that Berkeley has some phenomenal ice cream spots. Is there one we need to check out when we're in the area? You know, um, most of the ones, we, so my company hosts an ice cream social for clients every year, and we had, we had one of the greatest ice cream, but they don't do it anymore. I mean, they, it's, ice cream places went under during COVID. So, yeah. uh, you know, I just, I'm a whore when it comes to ice cream. I'll eat any kind of ice cream, you know, except for like vegan ice cream, not a huge fan of vegan ice cream. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, the controversial topic we usually cover is toppings or no toppings. No toppings. Okay. If you totally get, unnecessary. If you get good ice cream, you don't need any. Even if it's crappy ice cream, you don't need any. It's ice cream, man. It's ice cream. Ice cream is like pizza. Even bad ice cream is pretty damn good. Absolutely. Love it. All right. Well, Jonathan, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Well, I mean, to get to the scoop, you got to get to some sort of history, right? So uh, I've been an investor for 40 years. Right. Uh, I came to the conclusion probably 20 years ago that the vast majority of investment talk is BS. Like everyone is selling, a, selling their position or talking their book. Um, all the academic literature points to the inability to predict where markets are going. Uh, we can't control, we can't predict. Therefore, we can't look forward and make decisions that outperform. So we can't outperform. If we do outperform, it's lucky, right? Yet, any, anything anyone talks about is all about performance, right? There, there's a disconnect there. So for about 20 years, I've been focusing on how do we get better financial outcomes for people, for families? And it really comes down to two things. It comes down to education and better financial planning. And so everything I do today, it's about courses. It's about um, 
Uh, I do a monthly maintenance program where people, we, we, we just do, hey, this month you should do this and this and this and this, and then we take questions. And then next month we should do this and this and this, and then we take questions. So, so we do this kind of thing just so people can have better outcomes. And so we're teaching people. We can have a lot of impact that way. I love it. I love it. Well, I know through our conversations that you actually were a real estate investor as well. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about where your real estate journey began? And then we'll kind of shift into the financial planning aspects of it. Yeah. So the, my real estate, yeah. I don't know. I, I had a strange childhood. Um, I started off probably, so we were poor. And so I would, I would sneak into a local brokerage house and I would read value line research. Um, that's how I learned how to invest in stocks, right? Leading, re- reading the statistics and reading value line. And if you, if you don't, if you don't know, check out value line. It's a great source of information. If, even if they're still alive, I have no idea if they still, still do the thing. Um, but my dad also said, you know, he knew, uh, and he believed in our ability to become and our ability to succeed and our ability to, um, to earn money and make money, and invest money. So he actually had me reading as a 10 year old, things like, you know, Stephen Covey's Think and Go Rich. Uh, and there's probably, I don't know, you go to the bookstore, there's probably 500 books today published in the last two years on how to invest in real estate. And my dad had lots of those books. And so he started having me read these books and I, and I read them, you know, diligently um, I didn't actually start investing in real estate until many, many, many years later, but the path began when I was in, when I was nine and 10 and reading the books. And then in college, this is probably eight years after that in college, I went to school at Montana state university, really low tuition. You still had access to secured and unsecured, um, student loan debt. And so I looked very seriously at borrowing in order to buy a triplex. I would live in one unit, rent out the other two units you know, basically just right out of one of the books I read that my dad gave me 10 years earlier, right? Um, didn't end up doing it. Just didn't have the time, couldn't put it together, whatever. I was 17, you know, give me a break. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then f- finally in a year about late nineties, I started off on the path of buying a property a year. I bought one in California, bought one in South Dakota, bought another one in California, bought another one in South Dakota. And I did that for probably six years. I, I cobbled together about 20, maybe, maybe 22 units. Um, and then you know, 2007 came around. Um, and about 2006, I had sold one, I discovered a bunch of damage and, and decided I didn't want to be the one to repair it. And so I ended up getting out of one of ones in California. Uh, I moved the asset that was in that. So I ended up owning more in South Dakota. Uh, the difference between California and South Dakota is that California is like the equity market of real estate and South Dakota is like the bond market of real estate, right? That's how that's how we learn how to do real estate in South Dakota. You, you buy it. It doesn't really go up or down in value. It just cash flows and you put that cash in the bank or you pay off the debt or whatever. So that's, I kind of did it that old fashioned way. I wasn't really concerned about the values, the values going up or anything like that. Um, but then, you know, I ended up getting sued for stupid reasons. Like, like uh, a tenant was moving in. And again, I'm not even, it's South Dakota real estate. I'm in California. So I have a manager. And this tenant took um, a piece of plywood and put it over one of those concrete three-step staircases that's outside, you know, leading up to the front door, took this piece of plywood, put it over this. Uh, and then the plywood, when they were taking a, one of those carts with boxes of books, they took those carts up there, that the plywood slipped out, they fell, they broke their wrist and I got sued. And I was in this lawsuit for a couple of years. And I was just like, you know, how is this my fault? I don't understand how this is possibly my fault. Uh, and any case, that started the process of me going, I don't, I don't have the bandwidth for this. Um, I have a s- relatively successful financial planning practice. I've, I've got lots of equities and I decided to go pure passive with my investments. Um, and I ended up, 
liquidating my real estate portfolio. And 2021 was the last, the last piece was sold in 2021. Yeah. I know when we were first chatting about it, Bozeman, Montana has just gotten an explosion of real estate growth over the past uh, two years specifically. So when you first said Bozeman, Montana, I was smiling ear to ear thinking that you were one of those guys that held on for the long term and really saw it through. But um, I want to ask about the books you were reading in, in, uh, as a kid, but before I get there, did, it, in my opinion, in, if you own real estate long enough, it's not a matter of if you're going to get sued. It's really just a matter of when. So asset protection, and I've talked about it a lot on the shows, is kind of the key foundation to your long-term real estate success. If you just own one property and you're out in three years, you might get lucky. But if you're in this game long enough, it's probably going to happen. Did you have any kind of legal structures around that that... Um, helped you out during that process or any kind of lessons you learned during that process that maybe you would pass on to a newer investor? It's, it's, it's a, that's a great, no, I, so the, 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 in some, no, I didn't. And here's, and that, that created an additional problem for me. So uh, I have a company, my company is a financial planning company. It's an investment company. And so when they sued me, they named my company. I didn't own it in the name of the company, but they named the company, they named me and I was just like beside myself with this. It was, it was, a, it was a complete joke. It was a complete riot to me. And, and it just was too painful. Uh, but you're right. You know, had I set up the right things out, uh, at the outset, I might have been better off uh, with this. That being said, it's, it's, it's really easy for somebody, even if you do have those, the correct legal structures in place, it's really easy for someone to name other structures or other elements of, your, of what you own in any lawsuit. Like, the company was not at all tied to the real estate and yet they named the company in the, in the lawsuit. So it's, yeah, it's, you know, if you get into a space that is litigious, it's just painful. Yeah. Even if you're in the right, it's just painful. Yeah. It's not foolproof. Yeah. It's not foolproof at all. Yep. 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 Well, then I want to shift this back to the books you were reading as a kid. So it's funny that you mentioned that because when I was a kid, I was, I grew up dyslexic, so I wasn't a huge reader. And it's only as I've grown as an adult that I found a joy in reading and overcoming that obstacle. But one of the first books I can remember reading was in seventh grade, I think it was, and it wasn't the outsiders, but it was uh, this stock investing book. And I just found a love for it. And I had no idea that like 14 years later, 20 years later, I would be so interested in finances and business and things like that. Is that something that you were just naturally gravitated towards or did your dad help influence there? What did that look like in the household? So I, um, I remember this is, this is probably, I'm seven or eight years old. And I remember always worrying about um, noting that all my friends had nicer stuff that they drove, they took better vacations, that they, that their cars were nicer, that um, their clothes didn't have holes in them. My clothes got patched. My mom patched my, the knees on my jeans. I didn't get new jeans. I got, you know, I got hand-me-down everything um, from cousins. I didn't have an older brother, but I had cousins and I would get, right. So I always noted that I had less. And so uh, I grew up wanting, I grew up with that um, sense of lack and, and, you know, I've just, I've just recently realized that that psychology never leaves you, even if you are in a position of being um, well off. And right now I, I don't want for anything, but I'm always worried about losing it. And there's, there's an anxiety that gets implanted as a kid that you can't overcome just by having more. It's, it requires psychological work, no question. So, so it was in that background that I was like, okay, if I'm going to be successful and not have to worry about money, I'm going to have to learn about this stuff. 
And so my dad, did, he did take like uh, Kiplinger's and Money Magazine, those kinds of things. So I, I could read the media. I could read financial press. But you read, a, you, know, you read two or three or four of those magazines and very quickly, you know that they're selling stuff. That's, that's all they do is they sell stuff. It's not educational, it's, it's sales. And so if you, if you wanna learn, you have to go to a source. You have to go something like value line research. You gotta go to books. You can't, you can't read marketing to learn. You have to actually learn. You know, go, to, go to somebody that's writing, that has experience it, that knows how to do it. And that's how you learn. And, and today, oh my God, if you're starting out today, there are, I mean, the whole fire movement, this podcast, there's podcasts all over the place. There's a huge leg up today in the, in the ability to get knowledge to invest in real estate or stocks or crypto or whatever the thing is you want to invest in. There's people out there doing it and talking about it and teaching you about it. It's fantastic today. Yeah. One of my uh, tidbits I picked up from you in my research is this idea that you know Wall Street is just trying to sell you something. And I think I heard you say when you were at your first Wall Street firm, it was like, you're going to pitch Cisco which is a technology stock. So most of our listeners might be familiar with that. Then you're going to shift the bonds. And if they don't want that, you're going to go right in the middle, which is Juniper Networks, who is like a second or third tier uh, player against Cisco. So I do think, you know, I don't particularly watch the news. That doesn't mean I turn a blind eye to it and I try to remain ignorant of it. There's some news feeds out there that I curate and just try to understand what's going on. If something catches my eye, I'll dig into it deeper. But the uh, treadmill at my gym here only plays one station, that's the local news. And it's murder, shooting, drug bust. Like there's nothing that's that's there other than to scare you to try to sell you something. So could you talk to us a little bit maybe about your experiences at the different firms? And then I want to get into kind of what you're doing today around the book and things like that. So the experience at different firms, that, that could take a few hours in and of itself. We, we could, we'll, do, we'll do a quick brush over it. So I started at Dean Witter. Dean Witter was, it was, it was a lovely culture. I mean, and obviously it's not around anymore. So they didn't, they didn't win the competitive battle with the other, um, you know, investment companies. Um, they would hire anyone that could cold call. You know, you didn't have to have any special skills. They provided very little in the way of training, uh, sales training. It was all sales training. It was, you know, here's your, here's your stock. Here's how I pitch the stock. Here's your bond. Here's how you pitch a bond. Um, hey, I'd like to pitch planning. No, 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 no. We don't do that. We, we sell, we sell product. We sell, we sell things that we can get a commission on. That's what we do. Um, uh, and so Dean Witter was great. Morgan Stanley and Dean Witter merged. So then I was, uh, I was an employee of Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley was, uh, this guy, Jim Gunther was the manager at the time. And we called him the Iceman. And he would make us as, as um, rookies go into his office and basically make phone calls for him. And I, I remember saying, you know, you, you dial, 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 you know, please hold for Jim Gunther. And then I would sit there on the phone and Jim would be over here in his office, like doing his thing. And then he'd finally, two minutes later, this person is now holding and I'm trying to keep him entertained. And he'd finally come to the phone. He's not doing anything important. He just wanted to look important. That's what it was all about. It was like your image and how you would appear is disgusting. Um, and oh my God, this was, this was late nineties. So this was, I mean, the kind of misogynist crap that happened between um, advisors and assistants. It was just, just a horrible environment. Anyway, so um, I switched from Morgan Stanley and I moved to, to um, Payne Weber. Payne Weber was probably my best experience. Uh, Payne Weber was a great firm, doesn't exist anymore also. So you'll, you'll notice the two I like the most are the two that, the two that failed. Uh, uh, Payne Weber was great. Uh, UBS and Payne Weber merged. I left that, uh, went to Smith Barney. I was at Smith Barney for three months. Uh, we discovered, you know, in our office, um, we discovered that they were, 
how should I say it? They were intentionally overcharging all of their customers, you know, by a sliver, not that anyone would notice, but they were intentionally reaping a greater fee reward. And so I was, I was gone there from there in three months. Uh, and I, and I ended up going basically starting all over, um, with zero because, you know, every time you move, you have to, your clients all have to do paperwork. And so you move once everyone does paperwork move again in three months. They're like, what is wrong? Are you an idiot? Did you not do any due diligence on this? What kind of problems do you have here? So I had like four clients came with me when I went to, um, when I ultimately went to Prudential and Prudential was my last stop. Um, and Prudential was taken over by Wachovia. That's how I get to the seventh firm. I was at seven firms in five years, you know, two of them, three of them were my decisions. Everything else was a merger. And I said, okay, 2001, I'm done. I'm going to start my own firm. And I asked six clients, what do you want? I'm going to start a firm. What do you want? And they said, well, we think um, less product sales would be really important. Uh, more education. I really like to know how the, you know, how the sausage is made so I can, so I can trust what you guys are doing. Um, and I, you know, planning would be a good idea. And so we basically launched a firm around the idea of education and planning. And that was 21 years ago. Uh, and it's been an incredible run actually in late 21. So this is less than a month ago. Now it's very fresh. I just merged into a large national fiduciary firm. And so I am taking the, I'm going to manage my own business hat off and I'm going back to just working with clients in the trenches. Um, turns out I don't like thinking about tech stacks. I don't like human resources. I don't like managing people. I like work, working with people on building and managing wealth. That's what I like to do. So I'm just, I'm going back to that now, full, full bore. Nice. Well, congratulations on that. I was laughing during your story of like the mid nineties is kind of what I've associate with the Gordon Gecko and the Wolf of Wall Street type environment. Totally. And when you're talking about skimming a little bit off the top, you know, that that doesn't seem like a ton until you're just skimming a cent over millions of transactions. And all of a sudden now you're Citadel and you're shutting down Robin Hood when GameStop happens. Well, so I want to introduce maybe a new term to some investors out there called fiduciary. So can you talk to us a little bit about, I know that you're a fiduciary, but what's the difference between a fiduciary and someone that's a fee-based or an AUM-based um, uh, manager? So there's, I mean, fiduciary itself comes with lots of different um definitions. The, the basic, the simplest way to think about a fiduciary is they are required to put your interests above any other interests. So you can have a fiduciary that is AUM based. You can have somebody that's a fiduciary. If, if you are a CFP, you are a fiduciary. Now you can be a CFP and be employed by a broker. Okay. So it's, it's not as clean as, um, it's not as clean as what's your designation or determines your fiduciary or, or what company you work for. That I think the easiest thing you can do is once somebody establishes themselves as a fiduciary, it is their responsibility to look out for you above all else. Okay. So if you ask them the question, are you fiduciary? And or get them to sign a document, are you fiduciary? Yes, I'm a fiduciary. Then every decision they make, every recommendation they make, everything they say to you in the future is required to be your interests above theirs. Um, um, the, the flip side, the other side of the coin from fiduciary is a thing called suitability. And to understand what a fiduciary is required to do and what it means to put your interests above their interests um, is, is the opposite of suitability. So but I'm just tell a quick suitability story. So you can buy an index, you know, a mutual fund based on the S&P 500. Some of those charge you 0.02, 0.01%. Some of those charge 1.8%. So 
you own the same underlying stuff in both of those funds. Both funds are built to mirror the S&P, you know, before fees. So once you add the fee, the one that has a 1.8% fee is going to be, you know, not as good as the one that has a 0.02% fee, right? If you are a fiduciary, you have to recommend the one with 0.02% in the fee structure. If you're not a fiduciary, if you're a, if you, if you want to say meet the suitability standard, which is the lower standard, then, Hey, a client, it's suitable for them to own the S&P 500 and this 1.8% pays me more. So I can recommend that 1.8% fee S&P 500, as long as it's suitable for the client. So the difference is in the space of an identical product, I can recommend the one that pays me the most, even if it hurts the client. Right, that's the difference in suitability and fiduciary. Fiduciary cannot do that. And if they do that, if you've gotten them to say, yes, I'm a fiduciary, and then you look in there and you notice you have an SV fund that's got, that has a 1.8% fee on it, you're gonna win that lawsuit, right? That's something that's, that's going to pay off in your benefit. It's still gonna be a hassle, still gonna be a pain in the butt. I'd start by just asking the question, hey, you know, I thought you were, said you were a fiduciary, what's this 1.8% you know, S&P 500 fund in my portfolio for? Um, but you really wanna make sure if you're working with somebody and taking advice from somebody that they're a fiduciary because they have to put your interests first. And is it just as simple as just saying, hey, are you a fiduciary? If they claim and you have it recorded somehow that they're a fiduciary, they have to act as a fiduciary. Gotcha. That's the gotcha. only way I know of to be certain that they're a fiduciary. If, if, if they are an RIA, a registered investment advisor, most things that they will do will fall in the fiduciary space, but they may offer insurance. They may offer, you know, there's, there are products out there that an RIA can't manufacture that are beneficial for clients and that those products probably come with a commission. So if, if you are offering those, those products, you can't offer a product with advice. The product is almost always commissionable. That's not true of funds. I'm talking about, you know, um, there's, there's specialty products, private equity things uh, that, that one offers and usually come with a commission. Yeah, I guess to kind of wrap a bow on this conversation too is I, there's nothing wrong with using a suitability advisor, right? As sure. long as they have your best interest in the heart and they're giving you some education and they offer services that you need or want or desire, then that's okay. But I think it's appropriate for everyone, including people that are uh, heavily involved in managing their own finances to have a fee-based fiduciary advisor go over some of their stuff. And for a short, small fee, you can have them look at your portfolio and tell you what they think and what they're seeing across the industry and maybe some of the differences they would have. So I don't know, yeah. would you add anything to that before we kind of get into mindful money? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add is, is when I was at, so when I was at Morgan Stanley, that was probably my least favorite of all stops next to, next to Smith Barney. Um, so, so Morgan Stanley was an interesting place. Like everyone was a broker, you know, everyone, there's this guy named Phil who walked in and, and you know, he did his, he did his G-ster for the day he left, you know, so if he did a thousand dollars of commission for the day, he was done for the day. If that happened, you know, by 10 AM, he'd walk out. It, 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 he was, it's just gross. Anyway, so there's a guy in the corner and there's this guy in the corner, his name is John Dickens, um, San Francisco um, office. And in this environment of, broker, you know, dog eat dog sales commission oriented space. He would have files of clients financial planning that he would do manually by hand um, all, all over his table in his office. He was not a big producer, but he worked his tail off for his clients. So there are some great people that work in crappy environments and you, you can find them. They're there uh, um, and they're not happy that they're there, but it's, it's where they are, right? So if you want to find some great people, 
you know, you're always going to find diamonds in the rough. I think it's easier to be sure that you can trust somebody when the structure of what they do enables them to, to put your interests first. If you re, you're not going to get, I, I don't think you're going to get, there's exceptions, but if you go to a bank, they're going to sell you something that pays a commission. Yeah. But if you go to a, if you go to a broker, you're going to get something that's got a higher commission. If you go to an advisor, to a fiduciary, you're, you're, you're going to be better off. Are there diamonds in the rough? Yes. But why play in the rough if you don't have to? Yeah. It was one of those kind of crazy revelations of 2007 to 2009 that there's people out there on Wall Street and financial advisors that legally do not have to have your best interests in heart. And it's just kind of shocking to me every time I learn about Wall Street uh, brokers and dealers and things like that. But um, I want to switch us now to kind of the mindful money. And I guess I know there's three different parts of the book that we're going to go through kind of at a high level. But talk to us a little bit about like, why did you decide to write the book and give us the overall premise? So let's see here. Uh, you might remember, uh, you just referenced it, right? 2007, the world was falling apart. Uh, and I have a client who I was meeting with um, and she told me, hey, if you want to if you want to write this book, you, you, we had this great session. We had this conversation. Uh, Jonathan, I'm not comfortable investing right now. It's kind of scary. You know, there's people talking about the end of capitalism. I just, I just don't know if I should put this money to work. Uh, and I said, you know what? I, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to turn. I don't, I, I don't know. Sorry. I, don't, I do know that it's going to turn. I don't know when it's going to turn. I don't know what's going to cause it to turn. I don't know how long it's going to take for it to get better. I don't know what the steps are going to take. I don't know what the Fed's going to do. I don't know anything except every single time in history where we've had some kind of a fallout like this. Um, it's repaired itself in a, in a matter of years. And I just believe, it's not that I had anything, I can't prove it in any way, but I believe that two years from now, three years from now, we will look back at this moment as March of 2000. Eight, March of 2009, I think. We'll, we'll look back at this moment and this will be the best time to invest. The fact that you feel so terrible about it, the fact that it doesn't feel right is actually a really good indicator that it's the right time to put money to work, okay? Um, and she was like, you know what? That's it's an interesting take. It's great philosophy. If you ever want to put this philosophy into a book and sort of expand on it, you know, broaden it out, uh, I'll write your forward. Uh, and so that was, that was uh, Alice Walker and she is a Pulitzer Prize winning author. And so when a Pulitzer Prize winning author tells you, you should probably write a book, you write the book. It took me, took me forever. It took me seven years to write the book. Like it, actually, no, 10 years. It took me seven years to write it. And then two and a half years to finish it and edit it and, you know, bind it and put the design on the cover and all that kind of stuff and get it out. It came out in 2017, I think. Gotcha. Yeah. I, uh, I did a little bit of research. I actually ignorantly didn't know who Alice Walker was until I did some research and um, incredible, incredible resume. Don't admit that. Don't admit that you don't know who that is. (laughs) Hey, I didn't say I was the smartest one. Um, But I know in your book, you you talk about kind of three different parts. You've got the debunking the myths of Wall Street, um, creating sustainable happiness, and then really this idea of the plan and working the plan. So going through those, tell us a little bit. I think we hit a lot of the high levels of debunking the myths of Wall Street, but is there anything that we missed in our conversation over fiduciary, non-fiduciaries, and and things like that, that we want to maybe touch on in in that part? So there, I wish that was the only myth. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of myths. Uh, uh, but I mean, one of the things I see the most often, and I, I think this probably resonates with, uh, with yourself as well, and probably listeners as well, there's, there's a huge misunderstanding, and it's very public today, about the difference between investing and speculating. Um, we mentioned earlier that, that lots of uh, media, financial press, 
talk about performance. And it's, you know, how, how have you done in the last three months, the last year? And it's, the reality is we all know what performance was looking backwards and nobody can predict or control what performance is looking forwards. Nobody knows if next year, next six months, next four years, if real estate, real estate is gonna be better than stocks, if emerging markets are gonna be better than the United States, if value is gonna be better than growth, if large is gonna be better than small, nobody has any clue. It is only afterwards we look back and say, oh, I wish I would have owned more of that thing, right? Whatever the thing is that did the best. So that when you are investing, you are investing in something that is a high probability of return of capital and then some, right? Speculation, you remove the probability. Like you, you have no idea what this thing is going to do. And we see it enormously right now. Think about the last, think about 2021. Think about NFTs. Think about SPACs. Think about almost all crypto conversations. You go back, you know, even before that, you can go to, you can go to real estate in 2006, 2007, right? We saw that. We, you can go to stocks in, in late 1990s, early 2000s. There, all of these things have moments when they're great investments, and usually those moments when they're great investments are when people are thinking about it, right? You're thinking, okay, it's going to cost me X. Here's my probable return. Here's my return of capital. That's a good investment, right? Speculation is when no one's thinking about it. They're, they're diving into it because it's the talk of the town, right? That's when you get into trouble. And so one of the biggest problems I see, and this is, and Wall Street actually pumps this up, right? Whenever there's, whenever there's a new thing for people to invest in, and this is why, you know, as a point of legitimacy, the crypto world says, well, look, all these advisors are now talking about it. But that's, that doesn't mean it's smart, right? That doesn't mean it's a good, it's something we can predict and we know what's going to happen. No one has any idea today any more than they did, you know, two years ago, what's going to go with crypto. No one knows. It, it hasn't fulfilled any promises yet. So, um, um, Again, I, I get on my I get on my high horse about crypto because it's the latest it's the latest crazy, and I I, I despise crazy. Let me, let me ask you a question on this. So sure. I am long term bullish on crypto. I am long term bullish on smart contracts that underline NFTs. The so you're long term bullish on on blockchain. Yeah, not the, the currencies is, themselves. Yeah, the problem is ninety nine point nine percent of everything out there right now that you see will fail. Yep, I cannot yep. tell you the point one percent that will succeed. I can tell you Spot what on. feels better, <laughs> but I don't know what's going to succeed if it's going to be an ape or a penguin kind of thing. And we're talking about board Spot apes. Spot on. Yeah. Spot so, on. Yep, yep. No, I think that's an interesting point around like the time to get into things is this probability and you're running the numbers, not when there's a gamma squeeze going on GameStop and it's up literally a thousand percent in a week. That is probably not Same. the time to get yep. into something. Yeah. Um, and, but and there's, a, there's actually, there's a, there's a better way to, I mean, when you think about the, the point of business, like the point. So when I invest in equities, I don't, I don't, I'm not picking stocks. Like I, I invest broadly. You know, when I think about the United States, I think about 5,000 companies. I don't think about 500. I don't think about 30. I don't think about 100. I think about 5,000 companies. What that gives you, it gives you, a, it gives you a whole group of people in every industry, like voting different ways on every topic. So I'm very interested in crypto. I'm very interested in the blockchain. I'm very interested in how that changes how we negotiate and how we conduct business. I am not very interested in trying to pick who the winner is going to be. Because I know if I own all the companies, if I own 5,000 companies in the United States, some of them are going to love Dogecoin, some of them are going to love Bitcoin, some of them are going to go with Ethereum, some are going to choose something different, some of them are, of them are going to choose coins that haven't been invented yet. And you know yeah. what? One of those is going to win. And 
I'm just investing in the company. I'm selling shovels to the gold miners. That's all I care about. Like I, I'm not going to be the guy that wins a thousand percent. I'm going to be the guy that plods along making eight, nine, 10% a year. I'm great with that. That's, yep. you know, for me, that's passive. It's not guesswork. It's yep. how does it work? Let's make it simple. Let's make it applicable to many, 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 many people. And let's work with that. And there's a lot of people that trade every day and are all for it. It's just not my style. Yeah. In the equity markets too, when you're talking about, you're thinking about 5,000 companies, there's a specific uh, ETF out there that I invest in, VTSAX, which basically owns every public company out there. And what I tell people is like, that's probably the safest place where you can put capital and it'll appreciate up and to the right over the long term. Can't tell you what it'll do in six months. Can't tell you what it'll do in five years. I know in a hundred years, it'll be up and to the right. And what I tell people is, well, what, you know, they'll ask like, what happens if, the stock market goes to zero. And I'm like, if that fund goes to zero, you got a lot bigger problems out there in the world that you're not even thinking about money. So yeah. I, I don't know if you want to kind of respond or any, any thoughts on that. You know what? I, I can't, I can't agree more. Uh, so you've seen the movie, don't look up, right? Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Yeah. So at least yeah, you've yeah, seen yeah. the comments on it. Right. So if, if that goes to zero, it's because that's happened. It's because right. the, the asteroids has hit the earth, right? It's right. you can't, the, the idea that people make money producing things for other people that want the things they produce. That's how money is made. And the idea that that function is going away is ridiculous. Like there's no way that we're gonna see the whole world, capitalist world grind to a halt. There will always be people offering things to other people for a price that those people who are buying it are will, is willing to pay for the benefit of that thing, right? That, that will yep. always exist. And that's all businesses are. Yep, yep. Well, I, I don't wanna breeze over the last two parts of your book here because yep. the next section is probably my my favorite one that I wanna talk about is this idea of creating real-term sustainable happiness. And specifically, I've heard you say the comment, happiness dividend over time. And I think most of our listeners will know that one thing I care about more than the dollars on the scoreboard in your bank account or in your investments is this idea of living an intentional life. And when you have income streams coming in and when your money problems are solved, it just relieves a big burden off of your shoulders that you might not even know subconsciously you're carrying right now. So can you talk to us a little bit about like, what is a happiness dividend? How do we start understanding how to incorporate that into our wealth plan? So I look at that. Uh, I look at so actually wealth and happiness are, are two things that happen that they ensue. Um, what does that mean? So a lot of the philosophers, um, psychologists of old, a lot of you know religious pundits from 2,000 years ago, talk about a life well lived, and I've come to I've come to see that the that the wealth we create, the happiness we receive, uh, are things that come out of our attempts to be better people, our attempts to better ourselves, to make intentional choices. And, and the more we can just focus on the choices, focus on the morning routine, focus on how we communicate with other humans, focus on creativity, focus on, on flexibility, on awareness, on focus, the more we can focus on the things that we know lead to better humanity, not more money, not more happiness, but being better people, then we will receive for the benefit of being, it will ensue that more money will come our way and we'll be happier. Right. The, the, the idea is you can't set happiness as your goal. And if you set wealth as your goal, it's kind of gross, right? So become better, 
note the places you can improve. And there's, you know, there are, you know, in the book, there's, there's eight, right. We talk about, we talk about health, we talk about learning, we talk about relationships, we talk about um, meaningful work, we talk about accountability to our own goals, um, we talk about generosity, we talk about maintaining optimism, and we talk about um, gratitude, we talk about, you know, appreciating the good stuff, and there's people above you in the socioeconomic realm, and there's people below you in the, so Adam, where, wherever you are, you can be grateful for something, I woke up this morning, I'm grateful for that, you know, I have a roof, I'm grateful for that. Um, I have shoes. I'm grateful for that. I'm breathing. I'm grateful for that. There's always something to be grateful for. And, and if you note, and this is, this is research, this is academics saying those people who note the things that they're grateful for end up having more stuff to be grateful for. Well, isn't that what we want? So there's, there's, you know, these are the things that the philosophers have talked about. We know what they are. So how do we arrange our lives around those things? And then we go to the third part of the book. And the third part of the book is basically Start there, you know, ignore the stuff from the first part of the book that we can't, the smoke and mirrors, the stuff from Wall Street. Understand where real well-being, happiness, satisficing, where does that come from? Build your life on that. Make choices with that at the heart. And then build your financial plan on top of that. And that's what the third, the third, the third section of the book is just math. Um, but that's that middle section of the book. That's everything. As you said, that's everything. Yeah, I love that you broke it down into kind of eight sections there. I I mean, I think that all humans really derive happiness too from responsibility for others or accountability to others and this idea of quest to improve or learn or try something different or I guess improvement would kind of be the the other bucket that I would put that in. So, I didn't really even think about kind of all the other ones, but that that's fantastic. I didn't think about it before I started writing a book either. So it's like, you, you go, is there 10? Is there six? Oh, there's seven? No, I have eight. Okay, we're going to go with these eight. And that's not, you know, I don't cover everything. There's definitely other things to strive for. Yeah, I'm I'm almost wellness, uh, uh, happiness and wealth booked out in my life. But as we continue this conversation, the more I've, I've learned about you, like I think your book is definitely one that I'm going to get after this show and just dissect and learn through because I think you're touching on a lot of the same interests and philosophies that I have. Um, just so we don't breeze over it, you mentioned the last part is the plan. And um, really, that's just about math. I think one of the things that I've heard you talk about a lot is this idea of just sticking to the plan, right? And 2020 happened, you saw the dot com bust, you saw you lived through the 08 real estate crash and things like that. And then this 2020, every time they say it's going to be different, it turns out it's not different for some of the reasons that we mentioned. But any, what, what, what do you tell someone out there that is in 2020, maybe they just broke above positive net worth and, and got rid of their debt. And now they're seeing all their equity portfolio crash. How do they stick to the plan? Like what is the mental conversation or tips that we could tell that person out there? Yeah. So, I mean, th this is, this is, this is the $10,000 question or $10 million question. This, the, you know, how do you get people to not react? And so it, it, it comes in a couple of different ways. First of all, this is like vitamin C. What we're going to talk about right now is vitamin C. So what do I mean by that? So vitamin C doesn't stay in the body. Like you have to continuously take in vitamin C and your body continually, continuously evacuates it. So the idea of being psychologically stable, you know, emotionally stable, when the world is falling apart around you, it requires continual work. And so for me, part of that is um, I read all the time and I read, you know, 
current happenings. I read economic, you know, I, I read about the economy constantly, but I also read books constantly. And I also read, um, you know, history constantly. And so, so if you spend time in both today and in history, you, you realize that, hey, people in the past, you know, right now we think, oh my God, we're all so fractious and, you know, Trump is going to take back and all this kind of stuff, right? Well, the Nixon era wasn't any kind of picnic, right? Right. So there's, there is precedent to the insanity that we see. Um, uh, and in 2020, or was it 2020? When was it? Yeah, 2020, when, when COVID lockdowns occurred. I mean, I, I don't know if I was prescient or smart. I was just like, there's no way, there's no way that the economy screeches to a halt just because we can't go out. We are going to find new ways to spend money because we're pent up. We're going to go crazy at home. And sure enough, like Peloton, like all these companies, Zoom, you know, we found ways to communicate. We found ways. And that is the beauty of what business does is whatever the, whatever the structures are, whatever the limitations are, whatever the new crisis is, business works to serve their customers in that environment with that crisis. Maybe it's a president you, you don't like. Maybe it's a war you don't believe in. Maybe it's a pandemic. We've seen these things before and they always resolve in roughly the same way, right? There's all kinds of headlines. There's all kinds of volatility. There's all kinds of crazy. Um, uh, there's panic. And you see, you, you, can, you can look at the market charts. You can see the thing go down, 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 down. And then it spikes down horrifically. And that's what they call capitulation. Uh, and, then, and then it just starts growing back up slowly out of that, right? It happens all the time, every time. Um, again, I don't know how bad it gets. I can't know how bad it gets. I don't know why it's going to turn. I can't know why it's going to turn. No one else does either. The difference is I believe in the system we have in place that enables some people to get things they wouldn't ordinarily be able to have because they can purchase stuff because somebody else produces it, right? That, that, is, that is the infrastructure of our lives. And I believe that that doesn't go away. And I believe that the way it's built, it comes back. It comes back with a fury uh, because of we built our systems up to, to, to measure certain things. We measure GDP. I'm not saying it's the best thing to measure, but we measure it. The goal for the country is every year to have more GDP than the last year. If that's the goal for the country, then we're gonna we're gonna move things around to make it happen. The Fed is gonna change things. The federal government's gonna change things. The Congress is gonna spend more money. We are going to make it happen. How are we gonna do it? I don't know. I know we're going to do it though. Um, so you have to consistently read this. You have to consistently reset your beliefs, rethink about it. And then when the moment of fear comes, you have to not, you have to be able to uh, refrain from judging this. And that I think is the fundamental difference between mindful money and other money. Like mindful money is like, okay, um, I'm not going to judge what's happening right now. I, the minute I say, oh, this is bad. Then the next question is, what do I do about it? If you go, maybe it's bad. This is bad. Maybe I don't, you know, I don't know. I refrain from judgment. Maybe this is just normal. Maybe this is just part of the puzzle. Maybe this is just part of the game that we're playing. And I, I think almost everything is just natural volatility. You know, there's a natural response. A bunch of people get afraid and I just, I can watch it happen and we can watch it in media. I, I, I've already gotten calls like this is, it has begun 
regarding the Republican takeover in the next election of, for Congress. That, that has begun among my clients and they've begun asking questions and they've begun asking questions about the downfall of democracy in the United States. And it's, it's interesting to, to, to begin to hear the questions because I respond the same way I always respond. Like we are goal-focused and planning-driven. We are not market-focused and performance-driven. The reason is because no one can successfully game it with a market and performance-driven you know, viewpoint. You can't. So all we have is our goals and our plan. And we behave because of our goals and our plan. We don't change the plan because the world changes. Like the plan is the plan. And we keep saving the right amount, investing the way we say we're going to invest. You know, and it makes a lot of sense to have a, have a process to your investing. You can't, you can't just, you know, willy-nilly, today I'm going to buy this stock, tomorrow I'm going to buy this stock, today I'm going to buy crypto, next day I'm going to buy a REIT. Next day, you can't do that. You have to have a process in place um, to protect yourself. Uh, but, but you just follow the plan. Follow the plan. If you follow the plan, you'll get there. Uh, this thing that you're worried about today ends and something new comes down the pipe. Yeah, I want to uh, say two things there. One, I- I'm going to get dates wrong, right? But 65 through 73, my parents were in college and coming out of college and starting their first jobs. And I remember we were kind of watching this documentary there and I was like, holy smokes, you think we are volatile. Let me walk you through a couple of things that happened during those time periods that I was writing down over here. JFK assassinated, MLK, the civil rights leader of an entire race fighting for equality, assassinated, Malcolm X, assassinated, Robert Kennedy, assassinated, all during a time when there's 18% inflation, all of your friends are going to the Vietnam War, Sputnik gets launched, and the people that launched Sputnik have newts to destroy your country, and that's their bitter enemy. And you want to talk about an election rigging. I mean, Nixon gets caught red-handed in the White House using his authority against his enemies. Like, you want to talk about a volatile time. And where are we today? We are seven times the country. More things available to us today. The economy is way better. So to your point around the plan, like my plan and my investment strategy is to buy cash flowing assets that appreciate faster than inflation over time, that provide some sort of tax benefit to that if I can hopefully get leverage on, then that's the better. But that's kind of like my plan. And so when I'm going through different assets and deciding whether to invest in them, I'm at a stage right now where I say, does it cash flow? Does it appreciate faster than inflation? Are there any tax benefits to it? And can I grab leverage on it to juice my returns? Um, this, this is a fantastic segment right there. And I think you just caught your, first, like your five minute pitch of mindful money and the idea of being at peace with kind of your plan and where you're going. But I want to be very cognizant of your time because I know we're coming up to the top of the hour here and shift us to the last round here. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? So there, there's no way. I could possibly pick a favorite book, but there's a, there's a, there's a couple books that I read every year. And I read these books every year because I'm trying to write more. And um, Stephen Pressfield is the author. He, he writes, he's got a series of like four or five books on breaking through resistance. Um, he writes about um, well, the two books I read every year are the war of art and turning pro. Uh, and they're both about, you know, he's a writer. And so he talks to writers about the you sit down, you write, nothing comes. Like, how do you get through that resistance? And I, he's awesome. He also writes, there's another book I just read of his that I, that I it's like, a, nobody wants to read your shit. I think that's, it's a great, it's a fantastic book. His stuff is great on how to write. I love it. Stephen Pressfield, awesome. 
Yeah, I love it. I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things you do every single day. What's something that you do every day? Uh, I've, I have a pretty locked in morning routine. So my, my, my morning routine is, you know, either I'm working out doing something high intensity or I'm stretching. Uh, I meditate, I read and I write every day. Wow. That is almost identical to mine. So <laughs> I love it's, it. It's identical to many, many people that are out there, you know, driving. Yep. Our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Always forward, never straight. You know, in, in essence, you got to be flexible, but you never stop learning. You never stop becoming the best you. You never stop moving forward. Always forward. I, I love that. I'm an Ironman athlete. And that's what I tell people when they show up on race day for that big event. Like you just got to keep moving forward because if you move forward, you will be closer to your goal than if you stop. So um, our fourth one is what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? I mean, I, I do have a lot of things I'm proud of, but the things I'm, I'm, I'm most proud of is my, my kids. Like they're incredible. Uh, I, I got really, I got really lucky with two um, lumps of clay that were awesome to begin with. Uh, and then, you know, they just keep reaching, trying to be better, trying to do things, working hard. You know, they love each other. They play together. And I see all these other families and some of their kids, they, 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 they just bitter and they fight a lot. And I just don't see that with my kids. It's, I just, my kids are awesome. Hands down. My best addition to the world is my kids. I love it. I love it. Well, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Charlie Munger. Like Warren Buffett gets all the credit, but Charlie Munger is the best, you know, guy behind the guy in history. He is so smart. Everything he reads, you should, you know, everyone should devour it. I just, I love Charlie Munger. He's incredible. <laughs> I feel like you would have to wear a face guard though, because that dude throws some one-line zingers probably better than anyone I know. Yeah, and he's the you, best. Uh, if you ever watch one of their like Berkshire conferences or investor days, he's just so good at these like quick witted one answers and uh yeah that's phenomenal. i would record it i i wouldn't even i would have to record it because i wouldn't catch it all the first time around he's awesome yeah. well jonathan fantastic conversation i love uh, a lot of our values align with some of the the things that we had talked about if our listeners wanted to reach out and learn more about mindful money and some of the the services that you offer where's the best place we could put them yeah best place to go is to go to mindful.money uh that's a good place to start you know our blogs there podcasts are there uh, at the same time, you know, links to social media are there. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter. Those are the two places you can find me personally. But the, the best place to go to get information about Mindful Money is to mindful, no, sorry, yeah, mindful.money, not mindfulmoney.com, mindful.money. Mindful.money. And is your course there for those that want to just get the exercises in the book and not go through the book? So actually what I do is, is if, if you could put it in show notes, um, I have a course I would send you that's the free course uh, and you could link that up there. That's uh, and it's a values, Perfect. purpose and goals um, course. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. And I would love to have you back on to, to dig in deeper. That'd be awesome. Thanks, Matt. Been good. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.